This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our podcast on the chronic valvular insufficiency, uh, when to intervene, particularly when the patient has no symptoms. Uh, this time we'll concentrate on the mitral valve. And so with me, I have uh, Mustafa Ahmed, a director of the interventional and structural program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And Mustafa, welcome today. And um, see if you could tell us what causes the mitral valve to leak. Um, so different degrees of regurgitation. There's a, this starts from trivial and goes all the way through mild and moderate then severe, then even torrential after that. And a trivial leak anyone can have. You can basically have a totally normal valve, uh, looks normal, you're looking at it, can't d- detect any abnormalities, and you have this t- and, and I would consider that as normal. Important for many patients to know that if you have that trivial or really trivial to mild leak, you don't need to lose any sleep or worry about anything with that. There's, you just get on, live a normal life, and most cardiologists won't think twice about that. Now, the mitral valve, of course, separates the upper and lower chambers of the heart. When the lower chamber of the heart beats, um, usually blood goes forward through the aortic valve to the body, but the mitral valve stops it from going back to the left atrium, which is the chamber that it, the blood comes in from the lungs. And every time blood leaks through the mitral valve, It goes into that top chamber, which can absorb some of it. But if that can't absorb all the leak, you're going to stop feeling that in the lungs, and that's known as congestion. That's the process of congestive heart failure. So a normal mitral valve um, has two leaflets, and each leaflet has three scallops on it. And everyone's heard of one of the most well-known forms of leak, which is mitral valve prolapse. Now, most people in the 80s and 90s that were diagnosed with mitral valve prolapse, of course, didn't have anything wrong with the mitral valve. So I'm talking about real mitral valve prolapse where the valve is leaking, the process of degeneration, mixomatous degeneration can be seen. And that's one of the most common mechanisms. Other things may include calcium buildup over time, may include having other diseases that make the atrium bigger over time and the ring that holds the mitral valve together, the annular stretch. And so we have these various different things. We call them type, you know, one, two, three, and four, from chamber stretch to heart enlargement, which pulls the mitral valve apart, to mitral valve prolapse and structural abnormalities, uh, to the structures that hold the mitral valve in place, the cords and the, the, the leaflets are being damaged uh, themselves. And then finally, also things such as infection. Uh, infection of the mitral valve can also lead over time to uh, uh, degeneration and wear and tear and leak. So we have uh, primary causes uh, for the valve to leak, and we have also secondary causes uh, valve to leak, particularly when we're dealing with with a sick left ventricle, right? Yes. So primary and secondary, uh, when we talk about primary, for the most part, let's talk about the degeneration. So that means the valve itself is bad. And so each one's treated in a different way, primary and secondary. So for primary, um, really we're talking about forms of mitral valve prolapse, really, sometimes endocarditis of the valve and and different things that affect the leaflets. But really we're talking about the heart's doing fine at the beginning. 
but the valve itself has started to leak. And, and, and that's important because for primary regurgitation, you want to treat the valve primarily. And that's often with surgery, once it becomes severe and all symptoms develop. So primary is important for that reason. Secondary, that means not the valve itself, but the structures that hold the valve together, like the annulus, or the ventricle, the large pumping function chamber, sorry, that, that, um, where the mitral valve sits, um, that becomes larger or weaker over time. Um, that's called secondary, because then the valve is suffering as a consequence of the things around it. Uh, sometimes both exist. For example, when you have primary, you will inevitably, after a while, have the enlargement of the annulus, and you'll have some primary and secondary mixed. But once the heart fails and it's clearly secondary, we prefer to focus our initial treatments on the things that are causing that to happen, such as the heart muscle tissue weakness, blood pressure, uh, and other chambers that can cause other sorry, factors that can influence something called remodeling. We'd rather reverse the remodeling, improve the fluid status, do those things, because often the secondary leaky valve can improve without having to address the actual valve itself through intervention. Sounds good. Now let's focus on how do we evaluate um, the mitral leaky valve um, with emphasis, obviously, on the physical exam, but then maybe uh, putting some priority on the some of the echo um, means that we have to examine the mitral valve. Yes, uh, as you said, you know, most people are heard with a murmur. Uh, and then they'll end up getting an echo. And, and what's interesting is 50 years ago, or let's say 30 years ago, um, it would have been different, right? Someone would have heard a murmur and sent someone for an echo, and then they would have ended up making decisions on the valve. Nowadays, uh, I don't know for what exact reason, but almost everyone's had an echocardiogram. So it's the other way around now. People will come and they'll say, gosh, I've had this echo and I've got this leaky valve. And we'll say, uh, my question will be, so why did you have the echo? And I don't think a lot of people know fully why they had the echo, some just had it. Maybe it's become part of a routine checkup, but then some people have had it because they're having other operations or they're having other things done and it's found just, just, just there. So we're seeing all sorts of different scenarios where people are turning up with a leaky valve. Um, often there'll be a murmur of mitral regurgitation, you know, with very large people or different chest wall patterns or uh, different conditions. Sometimes that's hard to hear, sometimes it's straightforward to hear, but that definitely is still, still an important part of you know, uh, figuring out what, what's happening uh, and what to do next. And then the echo, the transthoracic study. That's the ultrasound on the, on the front of the heart with the gel. So we're looking there for leak, color patterns, how much color is going from the bottom to the top chamber of the heart. But quantification is important. There's different Doppler uh, techniques that we use. So now it's not okay just to say, hey, there's a leak happening. The leak's going from the bottom to the top. And this is, we want to know what is the leak? What is the percentage of the leak? What is the fraction of blood going leaving the heart that's going back into the top chamber? Those things are all important because those things influence decisions over time. And getting together with the ECHO staff, really educating people as to how to get this not just, you know, not just quantitative, not just you know, qualifying how much leak there is, but quantifying how much leak there is is important. We use things such as the PISA the isovolumic surface area, the regurgitant orifice area, the calculating regurgitant fractions, Doppler patterns, all those, again, in the, in, to untrained eyes, they can be dangerous weapons, if not known the limitations of each one and why it should be done and how it should be done 
But when done well and careful attention paid to detail, those things can provide us, you know, uh, critical information as to when we're reaching a threshold where we may operate. Now, that's particularly important in the mitral valve and primary MR. The reason that's important is because those things alone, even sometimes when your patient is asymptomatic, will drive you towards having a uh, decision on repairing the mitral valve. Now, also with uh, echo, we'll look for EF. In primary MR, the EF goes up before it comes down. So often it can be falsely elevated. So where normally EF might be 55%, if we see 55% in someone with very severe MR, we start to get worried because often we'll see those at 60 to 65%. And that's due to different loading conditions of the heart and, and false elevation of the ejection pattern. But then we can start to look at tissue, Doppler, strain, and other patterns. And the strain rate is known to be affected primarily, particularly in mitral regurgitation, and has been validated in echocardiography to maybe become affected before the overall ejection fraction of pitcher becomes affected. The chamber sizes are important. In mitral regurgitation, we have eccentric hypertrophy. So the heart is a low pressure, it's a low pressure, high volume state. So it's a volume overload pattern. So the heart starts to remodel eccentrically but the walls become thinner, uh, but the chamber becomes bigger, but then that fails earlier. And it's more important with mitral regurgitation than other forms of regurgitation, because if you don't intervene before that process happens too much, you're not going to get back to what you were. And for that reason, a significant, up to 20%, 25% of patients that undergo surgery for primary MR will have left ventricular dysfunction after the surgery. And that's why this is getting more and more, you know, should we be operating even earlier and earlier? Um, but, of course, the operation, particularly for primary MR, needs to be done in specialist hands because you don't want to replace a valve when you could repair it. So this echo assessment, quantification, the nuance of that become more important. The transesophageal echo, which we'll often do in people if we suspect severe MR, a small camera just down the throat, will look at the leaflets. It will provide beautiful 3D anatomy. I mean, when you look at these pictures, have a look at the, some of the articles on the site. When you see those 3D pictures of the mitral valve, it's mind-blowing. When you can see in the most minute of details, even which scallop of which valve is being affected, and the same measurements we just talked about can all be done with even greater accuracy with the transesophageal echocardiogram. And then MRI scan plays an important role in these patients. Chamber size, quantification, accurate um, delineation of ejection fraction, um, you know, measurement of left atrial size and function, as well as left ventricular size and function, those things also play a role, particularly when you're making decision to pursue a watchful waiting approach in someone with moderate to severe MR that doesn't have any symptoms that you decided not to operate on. Let's say now the heart team gets together and we're trying to make a decision whether this patient should be operated. Obviously, they have severe mitral insufficiency. They have very minimal symptoms. Are they, uh, what criteria do you use? Do you use, for example, the, some of the anatomy if you have a flare leaflet, or do you use a certain clinical criteria when the patients start developing AFib? Or what goes on in a discussion you know, to decide someone needs a new valve or needs a repair of that valve? Great. So first, th there's more um, markers of severity that we would look at over time, and that might include estimation of pulmonary artery pressure um, and use of right heart catheterization and sometimes to look at that and see if that's high, because that's a sign that even though, you know, early on nothing's been noticed yet, those pressures are elevated, and when those go high, those are often the trigger. 
development of atrial fibrillation. That's a trigger. Development of large chamber size with an end systolic dimension of around 35 to 40 or an end diastolic dimension approaching 50 to 55. Once those things are all achieved, you start to realize because studies historically over time that have looked at those have found that only bad things happen. And unfortunately, bad things have happened already by the time that happens. So more and more, we're moving away from those things. Um, now, all heart teams are not created equal. Very, very important. So what is the anatomy of a successful heart team that can be used to have a, an approach in mitral insufficiency, more so than any other valve when it comes to large-scale kind of decision-making? So the heart team should have people adept in imaging that understand troubleshooting and limitations and can really um, work with the staff to make sure this quantification of severity and anatomic delineation of this is being done well. They have experience at doing that, seeing valve patients and differentiating the different types of MR and looking at that. Then we have um, structural heart valve specialists, uh, maybe that do intervention, maybe that don't, maybe that do hemodynamic evaluations of the valve that can shed more light on that. And here's the critical part. So then surgeons. Now, remember, the average surgeon, historically, when we look at this, has done a few mitral valves a year. Now, well, what I tell anyone is, if you walked into a, an office and someone told you they're going to take your appendix out and you said, how many have you done? And they said, oh, I did two last year. I mean, are you going to have your appendix taken out? Or are you going to run as fast as possible from the office and find someone that's done hundreds, if not thousands, and has been trained in that and, and does that? and can do it using laparoscopes or whatever the techniques are. Same for gallbladders. When it comes to mitral valves, it's very interesting. Many mitral valves in the country are sent to people that will do three, four, five a year. The problem with that is we're talking one of the most complex surgeries there is known, and we're saying, and what do you think is going to happen? What's going to happen is that repairable valve that we wanted to repair because we are going early and primary mitral insufficiency is replaced, which is a travesty. Because then all of the outcomes we're looking at over time, they do not place that patient back on the curve. You've then introduced an artificial heart valve, which may need redoing, which may need lifelong blood thinner, which has a certain shelf life, which has an operative at risk, uh, morbidity, mortality. That's what happens. So really you need these heart team components in mitral valve disease to form what's called a reference mitral valve center, where the surgeon has done hundreds, if not thousands, of mitral valves. Where the, where the place itself is doing way more than 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 of those valves a year, where the people making the decisions are seeing hundreds, if not thousands of patients a year, and the people doing the studies that are uh, modalities are understanding what's at stake with each one and where teams can convene to discuss this. So the typical discussion that I would have with the surgeon is, hey, we've got this valve, um, it's leaky. Um, I'm concerned the chamber sizes are slightly larger, the patient hasn't developed symptoms yet, but I think this valve uh, could be repairable. I would like your opinion on operative risk and repairability. Have a look at the echo with me. Have a look at this other chambers with me. Have a look at the patient and let's sit down and talk once you've done that. Then the surgeon will look at the patient and come back and we'll sit again. And what I'll be asking is, tell me that you're going to give me a 99% chance of repairability of that valve and that patient's morbidity is very low. I want to know that patient's got 99% of getting through. And we as a team have to be obsessed with that. And then you can start to, in good faith, take earlier, earlier patients with mitral valve disease because you know you're going to do a repair in very experienced hands. But what's the advantage of that? 
The advantage of that is when you do take a patient before the secondary things occur, so when you take a patient with just severe MR, severe based on quantification and also other factors, you've done the TTE, you've done the TEE, you've done maybe an MRI scan, and you know that valve is severe, but you think it can be repaired. If you repair that valve, you're preventing the things happening that place you in a higher morbidity and mortality group. So what you are essentially doing is restoring that patient back as if nothing happened. But you don't want to do that if you're going to mess the operation up or you're going to do the wrong operation. And so there is the fine line for the responsibility for reference valve centers to say, we're going to offer you an early operation because we believe this can be a benefit to you. And here is our track record in making sure this is a benefit to you. So if I was a patient walking in and wanted to know about it, I would, I'd want to know what tells you about my echo. I don't want to know just about color. Tell me what else on my echo tells me this is severe. What's the quantification? How accurate is that? How good were the pictures? Who did that study? Do they do this all the time? Do the people making the determination feel confident in the, in the diagnosis of severe mitral valve disease? Have we done all the imaging modalities? Have we done a TE to confirm the TTE? Have we done maybe an MRI to do that? Have we done, you know, have we followed this thing over time? Are we, what is it that's pulling that trigger? And once that trigger is pulled, is my valve going to be repaired? How many repairs do you do? What is your percentage repair rate? What is your morbidity and mortality? And in the last 100 people aged 35 to 50 years old that came in here and got their mitral valve repaired, I want to know that 99% of those have lived, gone through, done great, and you're following them afterwards. And so that's the kind of anatomy of a mitral valve center. Imaging is the hugest part of this. But then none of this matters. If the intervention that you're going to propose to someone or do to someone isn't going to be in keeping with that. And so, as you can imagine, assembling centers with expertise in all of the above, plus a high operative, plus good outcomes, which of which an entire system takes into place, is very hard. And that's why very few of these centers exist to the level that you would imagine. And that's why guidelines can be dangerously interpreted, uh, if not done uh, in the right way. And it takes a community. It takes uh, uh, patterns of uh, trust and expertise to, to build over time to, to do that. But these are the, those, the factors we've just discussed really govern the decisions to be made. But early surgery for severe MR in the right hands probably gives people the best outcome over time. Well, I think that uh, we always have a very animated discussion when we get Mustafa on board. That was really kind of a very, very good review on uh, some of the problems that we see with chronic valvular insufficiency, first discussing the aortic valve and then the mitral valve on what causes the leakage, um, how do we evaluate non-invasively, particularly with the equidoppler, uh, qualitatively, you know, how does the leakage look, and uh, quantitatively, how do we measure how important that leakage is, and particularly important, how does the heart react to this, um, to this uh, extra volume load and, and how does the, the heart adapt, making sure that we catch it uh, before the heart decompensates. And this is where the timing becomes so important. And this is where we have to really get together with an expert uh, heart team approach in a center that does that night and day. That's really, that's really well put, actually. You know, it's like structural engineering. It's like having a bridge. Um, at some point, um, you know, there's a certain amount of cars that it can carry and, and 
you know, you've got these teams that come in and look at the bridge and they're like, gosh, there's some cracks here and this, there and that, there, and the loaders here and there. And you're making this big decision. And you know very well when you say, we're going to take the bridge down. No one likes it, right? <laughs> and so you want to be sure when you're going to intervene on any of these valves, you know, it's a big deal for someone to undergo a heart operation. But it's also a big deal for a bridge to fall down and everyone on it, you know, have the calamity. So it's a very... It's a very carefully uh, made decision, and, and I think you just put it really well with all the all the factors that go into it. Thank you very much, Mustafa Ahmed from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thank you again. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.